Jeremiah Scott Johnson. Several of our students are also uh, starring in the rumors tomorrow night. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> Annie Beatrice Nagoff. Abigail Lowen. Seth Mather. Erica Scrow. Carly Nicole Skinner. Brittany Thornton. Charles Way. And Frank Zadrovich. Um, if they can express their um, um, gratitude. So uh, one from each school, and I don't know the order in which uh, you've decided. So we'll do it alphabetically, dental, dental school. This is Annie Beatrice Legoff. Good afternoon, good evening everyone. Um, I'm a third year dental student. I'm doing uh, the DDS and PH program and I'm very happy to be here today. I'm sorry if I'm nervous. I didn't know I was gonna speak today, but <laughs> <laughs> I'll try and act as calm as I can. Um, 14 weeks ago, we began this semester and I knew little and next to nothing of my classmates and of my professors. And after this semester, I feel like I know the scariest moments, the greatest moments, the saddest moments of their life. And it is with great honor that I now call them my friends and hopefully someday my future colleagues. As a third year DDS MPH student, this class was especially meaningful to me because I was exposed to new sources and scopes of medicine, including a palliative care team that my tetrad and I had the pleasure and privilege of observing. Um, I was able to uh, further contact the social worker that was a part of that team and we're now going to be working on a project um, together that um, has a little bit to do with dentistry but not that much. Um, she, uh, we're actually going to set up a referral system for patients that are diagnosed with terminally ill um, diseases and they really they want to go back to their countries to pass away. So we're going to set up a referral system of um, geriatricians and oncologists, um, so doctors at Columbia and all over the U.S. that um, have Dominican patients can refer their patients there. Um, so that's something that I'm very excited about um, because hospice care is especially meaningful to me um, because my grandpa um, was part of that and I definitely saw the impact that it had on my family. Um, Columbia is leading the way um, in primary care and I feel that this class really helped me um, get a better grasp on that uh, with doing cancer screenings, tobacco cessation programs, screening of diabetes. Um, I feel that this class helped me tremendously um, implement my MPH degree. Um, relying and trusting um, my, my colleagues, with my colleagues um, that I can now call dentists, um, doctors, uh, nurses, and public health leaders, um, we all strive for one thing, to provide the best possible care to our patients. And uh, I hope that in the end, we can all look back at this and say, we had nothing to lose but everything to gain. Thank you. I was told I'm supposed to be brief. <laughs> I don't know if that's in my vocabulary, but um, I guess I will. Um, I don't know if there's anything that can be said that's more beautiful than what Anya said, but um, it's honestly been a wonderful 14 weeks. I love this kind of gathering and narrative um, stuff, but most importantly, I guess I just want to give you guys a feeling for what we know about each other and what we've learned, so I'll be really quick and brief. But um, The things I've learned, First with my Tetrad, the groups that we worked in. Um, I've learned that 
I was in the presence of Charles Humor, which is dark, cynical, but also amazing. And I appreciated it more and more every day. And his amazing way to put words to paper in his eloquent speech. I was subject to Nicole's compassion and love um, and her devotion to her family, which I think is evident of most Wisconsinites. <laughs> and I was very, very ecstatic to, um, to witness Abigail's uh, over, like, enthusiastic joy upon meeting a Wyomingite as myself, so I was very appreciative of the fact that she could be so excited to meet somebody from Wyoming. She loves it so much, so, um, and her love and compassion extends deeper. And it continues on into our class. Um, the four nursing students, which apparently all nursing students are blonde hair, blue eyed. <laughs> so that's something I've learned. Um, to the eloquent speeches of Anya, to Andrew's amazing comments, to everything that we post on discussion. Um, to Jeremiah, another fellow Rocky Mountainer who's become one of my best friends. Um, to my fellow medical students, some of which I'll be spending a lot of time with this summer. Um, and who I feel so comfortable with um, and confident in their care, and the faculty as well, um, and all the public health, I can't forget the dental students, um, some of them who've adopted their wife's last name, which I find is just um, blows my mind away, and I'm awesome. Um, it goes on and on. And the faculty, who have continued to be an amazing, amazing part of this journey. Um, Dr. Gatta, who everyone loves in his clinic, who my, my Chetra got to follow, especially the women. Um, I'm just kidding. But everyone seriously loves Dr. Gauda, and I am humbled to have him as my own professor in, um, in my school. To Dr. Sharon and her amazing, literally, evangelism and her constant love and expression and vocalism. I just love that every day. She's so appreciative of all of our works. Um, all of you have been great. Um, each and every, I can mention Dr. Cook, Dr. Salentine, all of you. I, I'll forget all your names, but you know all of you out there. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been appreciative. Um, and every one of you has made an incredible difference in our lives. And it just makes us realize how important it is to come together. Um, um, we started this together. We end this together. Together we shall go. Thanks. <laughs> okay, so ours really actually is pretty brief. Um, so for all of us from the School of Nursing, we all noted that we were drawn to our field because we wanted to provide holistic care. So body, mind, soul in a very personal, very personal way for a lot of our patients. And being in this class has showed us that in order to provide the holistic care we hope to give our patients, we certainly can't go it alone. And in order for us to be our best, we need to have faith and trust and communication in our fellow colleagues. So it's been a huge privilege for us to take this class, especially because for the last couple of weeks, we've been able to meet students and collaborate with them and work with faculty that we might otherwise not have gotten to meet. And at a school like Columbia, that's certainly a privilege for all of us. So. That's pretty much what we wanted to say, but thank you to the staff and the students for all the effort and enthusiasm, because I think that really helped define this course, and it would be a privilege for us to work with any of you in the future. Wonderful. And Frank from the School of Public Health. Um, I think it was interesting speaking to a couple of the other students from the School of Public Health when we had started in this course. Um, I, I think we felt like we were coming from a discipline that was going to be seen as the touchy-feely discipline in the room. Uh, and I, I think that I can honestly say that there are other touchy-feely students who come from the medical school, come from the nursing school, and the, the school of dentistry. Um, and it was a real pleasure to be able to, to find out those other sides of, of the students here at Columbia. Um, I, speaking personally, um, I, I think speak for all of us as well in saying that issues came up in this course, um, things of, uh, about each of our individual lives, of the way that we look at the world came up in this course that I don't think I ever could have imagined coming up in an academic setting, um, let alone in a, a setting of health professionals. Um, and I think 
each of us bearing our souls essentially to each other um, in this class, in learning, um, in, in trudging through some very difficult topics. I think forge relationships that I, I hope that we all can carry forward in each of the students' um, own professional careers. And I hope that um, as those relationships are forged in, in our own lives, that uh, we can carry that forward that others here at, at Columbia and at uh, Presbyterian and at other hospitals here um, starting in New York City can can really essentially begin to feel the things that we felt in this course. I think that um, the essence of the uh, of understanding our own health um, be, became the the center of understanding the patients that we talked about and the, the lives that we witnessed and, and discussed in each of our conversations. So um, I hope that you, as you observe these students um, over their next years, I'm unfortunately graduating in two weeks, so I'm going to be going elsewhere. Um, but I, I really hope that uh, the, the light of the Macy Foundation and of what's gone on in this semester um, can really begin to, to be seen all over Columbia's campus. So thank you for um, the honor and the support in allowing us to, to be able to share this with each other this year. So. so George, this is what you did. This is what you did. Uh, it's not an accident that it was done by George Thibault. Uh, George, has, Dr. Thibault, has been a visionary leader within medical education and medical practice throughout his career. Uh, he, um, um, I know, I know the, the uh, revolutions that you helped happen at Harvard uh, in founding the Academy for Medical Teaching at Harvard. You're the, the first Daniel Fetterman uh, Professor of Medical Education and now the Fetterman Emeritus Professor. Um, um, Dr. Thibault is an internist. He, he uh, served as Associate Chair of Medicine at the Mass General Hospital. Uh, he has all the um, credentials to be the most influential uh, voice for all of us in not only how is medicine to be practiced, but how, as a visionary, is the future of medicine and healthcare to be practiced. He became the president of the Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation in 2008 and has uh, taken it as a cyclone because of his passion and commitment to, to, to um, uh, uh, creating, strengthening, forging the kinds of relationships within our healthcare centers that are required. And were it not for his vision, we would continue in our silos, separate and isolated from one another. Welcome, George. So, uh, thanks, it's wonderful to be here. You feel this warmth and love uh, and affection that you have for each other. Uh, this is a difficult assignment. Rita told me I was coming to talk, and well, there's going to be a cocktail party before and a cocktail party after, and oh, incidentally, there's going to be a graduation. And I said, ooh, this is an interesting talk. Uh, and uh, I'm almost inclined to do away with the slides, but I might use a few as a guide. Uh, I'm reminded of the old joke about uh, uh, the commencement speaker, because I'm now a commencement speaker, of being analogous to the deceased at an Irish wake. <laughs> an absolutely necessary presence, but shouldn't forget the fact that, he, that that's not the purpose of being there. <laughs> so the purpose of being here today is to celebrate these wonderful students and the experience they've had. But maybe I can help put it in context about why we're on this journey together. I'll start by talking a little bit about the grant at Columbia, which followed a year's planning grant uh, and we worked a lot together. It was a very iterative process about where this was going to go and what we were going to do with it. Because this was, and you'll see, I'm going to give a few other examples. Uh, this was different in many ways, and we're looking for different and creative things. A different approach to this concept of interprofessionalism. 
in that it started with the faculty before we even got to the students, which is very insightful, actually, because as I'll refer to in some of our experiences, we often get to the faculty later and understand that we can't do this because the faculty never learned this way. We're trying to change the paradigm of education, and our faculty had the old paradigm of education. So it was insightful that it started with the faculty, and it was insightful that it started with Rita's approach of using narratives and storytelling as the common ground that we all have as caregivers. But then how to turn that into something substantive. The ideas were good. We went back and forth a lot. And I hope we planted some seeds uh, that are going to grow. That the seminar that you just heard about, which sounds like it was astoundingly successful for what we hoped, but we think, well, we reached 16 students but only 16 students. How are we going to enlarge those circles? We have a dedicated core faculty, but it's still a tiny, tiny percentage of the total faculty. So we have to think about how we take this idea, which those who've experienced it and been a part of it now know is the right idea, and how do we multiply it so that you aren't the only ones to experience this new way of learning, this mutual respect, mutual understanding, and sense of uh, fulfillment that you get about learning together and doing together. And how can we get the faculty to realize uh, not only that there are exciting new frontiers out there, a whole bunch of other students to reach and, and to influence, but also the experience as faculty members of learning from and with each other, and the sense of renewal and growth that comes from that. How can we multiply? There are a few specific projects besides the seminar within this Columbia grant. One at the dental school, to take this concept of uniting primary care and dentistry, a very, very innovative concept that we think could have a major positive impact on the health of the public. And a specific project within the School of Public Health to have an interprofessional certificate of public health so that we can broaden the population of health professionals that learn the important principles of population medicine and interventions at a larger level than the individual encounter. But we hope again the multiplier effect. Those are only two ideas of many that could be promulgated that would bring the health professional schools together. So I, I will leave here with my excitement about what's happened already, but my plea to don't let it stop here. So let me talk a little bit about the journey that we've been on. And is it okay if I move away from the mic? Can you hear me or should I, maybe, I guess the acoustics here aren't good. No? So when I started in 2008 as president of the Josiah Macy Foundation, came from uh, the background in, in Boston and Harvard, working between uh, a life as an educator and a life as a clinical leader. It was apparent to me, and I had a f some time now to s reflect on what I had learned and where did I think the problem was or where did I think there were contributions to be made. And the idea that struck me that was most powerful was that we had a healthcare delivery enterprise and an educational enterprise and they weren't talking to each other very much. And at a time that there were dramatic changes going on in healthcare delivery, uh, and in the population we serve, that the educational enterprise had been somewhat isolated from that. The educational en enterprise appropriately has been focused on achieving standards. Very important to have high professional standards and to see that they're met in each of our health professions. And also very focused on filling the institutional needs of the institutions that are so valuable in training our health professionals. But less focused, individually or collectively, and looking outward to, are we fulfilling society's needs? Because it is, it is just possible, and some would say true, that we could do a fantastic job of fulfilling our professional standards, of being absolutely confident. We could do a fantastic job of fulfilling our institutional needs, but fail to meet society's needs, because we weren't paying attention to the changes that were going on and to what people needed out there. So as an overriding principle, starting in 2008 and going to whoever along I'm able to do this, was this concept 
that health professions education should be more closely aligned with the needs of the public. And we should be using that as our measuring stick. Not giving up our professional standards and not giving up our institutional role, but adding to that this higher standard, which we test ourselves against whether we're fulfilling society's needs or not. And that, if we really think that way, begin to think, well, maybe we should do some things differently about how we're training people, what kind of skills we want them to have, where we're going to train them. And that led to this concept, one of the tools, it's not the only tool, but one of the important tools to think about health professions education that more closely fulfills society needs is to think of it interprofessionally. So what do we mean by interprofessional education? There's a definition from WHO that I like to use because a lot of people say, oh, we do interprofessional education. Our students see other health professionals, or they see this or see that. No, interprofessional education is when learners from two or more professions learn with, from, and about each other in order to achieve a greater collaborative practice. And that's very important. It's learners learning together. What you heard from these students, and we hear these testimonies all the time, when students have had this experience, they can't believe we've never done this before. There is so much to learn from, with, and about each other. But our educational processes created in silos until you're a completed product have denied our students, our learners, that opportunity. So students, learners, learning from, with, and about each other with a goal. And there has to be a purpose. It's not an end in itself. A goal of ultimately providing better patient care in a collaborative way. So that's the driving force. So what's the case for this? So the following logic tree I take you down. We have increasing body of evidence that health care delivered by well-functioning teams is better care by many measures. Patient satisfaction, patient outcome, efficiency, professional satisfaction, a very important measure. Yet, we continue to educate our health professionals by design, separately. And at the same time, we have an increasing amount of evidence that there are poorly functioning healthcare teams out there. In fact, the well-functioning teams are the exception rather than the rule. And the negative consequence of having these poorly functioning teams is even greater and greater and greater in the burden of illness in our society, the cost of the care we give, the poor access to care, the unreliability of care, as a consequence of having poorly functioning teams. Therefore, we should make team-based competencies and the skills of being a team member a core element, not a sideline, but a core element of health professions education. And in order to do that, interprofessional education should be some part of every health professional education experience. That's the logic tree. It's a pretty compelling logic tree. And it's driven us then to embark on a series of activities to promote interprofessional education. Now this idea is not a new one. This idea has been around, people have been writing about it for 40 or 50 years. But it hasn't happened. So why hasn't it happened? There are a number of obstacles, and those obstacles came up in the discussion of this grant. They come up in every institution. The first is logistics. Everybody's on a different calendar. Uh, courses are different, they're called different, sometimes they're blocked, sometimes they're longitudinal. How do you ever get the schedules together? How do you, they occur in different buildings, how do you find the space, the classrooms, and what do you do about faculty schedule, which is also totally on a different uh, schedule. Second is, how do you know what the right timing is? Should they always be first-year students with first-year students, or can you mix levels of students? Um, what is the right match of, of student prior experience, student sophistication, student readiness for this? What is it you teach? What should be taught interprofessionally? What are the common elements that everybody should know that are better taught interprofessionally than uniprofessionally? And I would say, and we'll come back to it at the end, that this movement for interprofessional education does not deny in any way the important value of each profession 
having its own strong identity and its own core of skills and knowledge that are theirs. But defining that overlap is important. How do you do it in clinical experiences? This has been one of the most complicated challenges. Uh, it's difficult enough to work in students profession by profession. How do you work them in as teams? How do you handle that logistically? Is the system accommodating to that? And, uh, and do we have people who are comfortable, both teachers and patients, with that? And then we have to get the faculty ready. And I said Rita had the insight to start with the faculty and then move on. And in many places, you start by trying to put the experience and then realize you don't have the faculty to do it. You have to go back and get the faculty ready. And then finally and importantly, there's the culture. And the culture is the big thing. It's the elephant in the room. Uh, it has to do with how we have all been acculturated in our profession. Fierce pride in our separateness and independence. Often with caricatures of the other profession that kind of makes us feel better because we are something different than them as opposed to defining it by the common ground that we have as health professionals with a common purpose, and that is to make health better and to make the care of an individual patient better. So we have huge cultural barriers to get over the hierarchical thinking, and I would say as a physician, the physicians are the most guilty in that, and often these movements or these attempts to do interprofessional education in the past have failed because physicians in medical schools have not been at the table or not wanted to be at the table. That has to change. And we have to be able, across the professions, to recognize when each of the professions has something more valuable to offer and is more knowledgeable at this moment, in this situation, than we are in our own. So the cultural barriers are, are very great. I do believe that efforts such as is undergoing here is part of the cultural change. It alone won't do it, but as you engage faculty and get them to think differently, they become part of the change agents. As you give students voice, uh, they become part of the change agents. And as you have the leaders of the organization, as has been true here, the deans of the schools, who want to make it happen and can overcome the logistical barriers, you begin to bring about the cultural change. So I'm, I'm going to go quickly through this just to give you a sense of what's happened. And the reason to give you a sense is to realize that this is no longer a theoretical discussion. We now have three or four years of experience in doing real work in this area and begin to have a story to tell, which begins to give us some idea of what works and what doesn't work. And so I don't want to bore you with the details, but just give you a sense that there is a volume of work out there. That, that you are a part of now, but there, there are people ahead of you in it, and people have done things differently than you've done. So there's, a, there's an opportunity to learn together uh, and, and to begin to put to rest the argument that it can't be done. So we started uh, with a cooperative venture with the Institute of Healthcare Improvement, uh, the organization founded and led by Don Berwick so brilliantly for 20 years whose mission is to improve health care in the country, but had begun to realize that one of the tools to doing that was to improve education. Started a very innovative pro program called the Open Schools, uh, which enrolls, it's a student-led grassroots movement to teach the principles of quality improvement and patient safety in schools around the country and now around the world. Uh, and sitting with Don Berwick, I said, is there some way we can begin to mainstream this and institutionalize it? So through IHI, we, we had a call for proposals. In order to be eligible, you had to have a nursing school and a medical school that wanted to come together and do something in common about a core curricular element to teach principles of quality improvement and patient safety in medical schools and nursing schools. Uh, and uh, we had about uh, 40 applications for this. Uh, six schools were selected and, and did very innovative projects that are still going on. And again, it was kind of a proof of principle that you can do it. You can do it, not only can do it, but it can be done very well and very exciting. The students love it and there are measurable changes in attitude, skills, and behaviors at the end of this. 
We then had a national conference, again with the same admission criteria. You had to be a medical school and a nursing school that applied because you wanted to come to a conference, the subject of which was reforming medical and nursing education. And we did this, we co-sponsored this with the Carnegie Foundation. And it was at a particularly seminal moment because they were just publishing two studies. One is reforming nursing education and one reforming medical education that was the 100th anniversary of the Flexner Report, which had been uh, 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 sponsored by the Carnegie Foundation. So they came to us and said, could we do something to celebrate? And I said, well, the only thing I'd be interested in doing to celebrate is to bring the two together. Yeah. Not a separate nursing celebration, medicine celebration about reform, but reforming together. So seven pairs of medical schools and nursing schools competed, were selected by a national selection committee, and came away for three days together to do nothing but talk about where they could find common ground in the curriculum. And if they could change one thing together, what would they change? And each came away with a project, a project that, that not only came to fulfillment, but in virtually every instance led to several other projects that they did together. We then came together uh, six professional associations uh, representing nursing, uh, uh, public health, pharmacy, uh, dentistry, allopathic medicine, that is the MD degree, and osteopathic medicine, the DO degree. We're working on a set of common core competencies that they would all agree on, consensus common core competencies for team-based care. We convened a group of people before they published these to kind of vet them and say, okay, do they have the right ones? Do, could we get leaders of healthcare systems, leaders of educational programs across the profession to buy into them? And if so, what would we do with them? How would we promulgate them? How would we take them to the next step? So we convened these groups of leaders to discuss these core competencies that had competencies in these four domains, about 10 specific things under each domain that began to be a curriculum. What is it you would teach? And then how would you measure it against some pre-existing standards? Out of that has come a whole series of proposals, some of which have led to grants from us, from Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Hartford Foundation, and is about to lead to an announcement that we hope is gonna come out later this month of the creation uh, of a national center for uh, uh, interprofessional education and collaborative practice. So we, along the line, all, all this time, have been reviewing individual grants from institutions like the one at Columbia. Uh, and these now involve, we, we had a, just had a meeting that Rita was there with a team that included uh, Jan from the nursing school and Letty from the dental school. And uh, so it all, in all, included 24 institutions, 20 different teams. Every team included a medical school and a nursing school, but many of the teams also included a pharmacy school or a school of public health or a dental school, uh, uh, as the team here represented four health professional schools. So what, were some, what are some of the things that have been accomplished by these grantees over the last uh, three years? I'm just gonna give you a very brief rundown. You've already experienced uh, one of them. So one of the most successful um, areas is to identify content that is either absent or poorly done in the curriculum that could be better done by doing it together. And it's, and it's obviously easier if you haven't done it before because nobody owns the turf yet. Or easier if it's being done but everybody acknowledges they're not doing it well. Quality and patient safety has been at the top of that list and we have probably eight or nine different places that are doing very innovative things to teach health professional students together and to problem solve together and actually do um, uh, projects together to improve quality and patient safety. End of life care is another, geriatric care. The list is growing longer, but very specific content area that are identified as weaknesses in the curriculum across the health professions say let's do those together, do them better than we ever did them before. Another important area is early clinical experiences. In all of the health professions, we take novices and we make them into health professionals by teaching them how to take a history, how to do a physical exam, how to become aware of the social context in which patients occur, uh, illness occurs, and the patients experience that illness. 
why not teach those skills together? And why not have those early formative experiences, at least some of them, be together? We're doing that now in about a half a dozen places, and those are exciting, wonderful experiences. We have a number of schools that are actually mapping their curriculum, medical schools and nursing schools side by side, and doing a four-year map, saying, where are, where are the possibilities for intersection and what do we have in common? And we have schools like Columbia that are thinking about this on a medical center-wide basis, saying all our health <coughs> professional schools should be thinking together. What, what should we do together? And I already said there's some unique features here compared with some of the other places. Colorado, for instance, is introducing all of its health professional students together, has their orientation process together, and have their first clinical encounters together. New technology is helpful. Simulation has been a wonderful tool. Again, simulation is just a tool. It's not an end in itself. But it's become a very, very convenient way to overcome some of the logistical problems of how to do uh, uh, clinical training together, how to do teamwork training together, and it has been a powerful tool to get faculty and students crossing interprofessional lines to analyze and critique uh, encounters in a simulation laboratory. Online learning allows for asynchronous learning conversations across uh, but not only time but school lines and traditional boundaries. And then finally, the important area of faculty development, uh, which we are realizing and everybody's realizing needs major investment and improvement if we are going to have a whole cadre of faculty who not only are comfortable with this but are excited about it and are, uh, are familiar with what the goals are and what the tools available are. So we've learned some lessons. Uh, and, and, uh, and I've referred to some of them already, but let me um, just run down this list. First of all, and I already acknowledge the importance here at Columbia of having four deans all in line. And I knew they were in line, because I knew them all, and I talked to them all. Uh, and quite frankly, you wouldn't have gotten the grant unless they were. Uh, and, and that is very important. It's very important, first of all, because we could, I told you there's this long list of logistical barriers. And anyone can be the showstopper. But if the dean says it's going to happen, it'll happen. You can overcome the logistical barriers. But perhaps more importantly, it's important for the cultural reason. The, the leadership at the top and the evidence of that leadership and evidence that the leaders themselves are talking to each other and, and buy into this is an important part of the cultural change that needs to take place. Um, the second is that this doesn't happen casually. Uh, and I think many of the early attempts to do interprofessional education failed because they were not given enough careful thought and preparation. This is rigorous, serious, academic, scholarly work with educational rigor and educational goals. And it can't be done by just saying, oh, we've got a Monday afternoon free. Let's throw our students together and see what happens. Um, it, might have some social benefit, but it doesn't have educational benefit. So this has to be done rigorously. It has to be done with careful forethought and planning. And almost always, I would say always, um, involves changing something. You can't do it by just trying to tinker and say, well, we'll fit it in here or there. Something's going to have to change. Somebody's going to have to change their schedule. Something is going to have to change. And that means careful planning to make the case for it and then to see that it can be done better. Uh, third is that the experiences need to be repeated. A single encounter isn't enough. So what comes next? Uh, and having had this great experience for these students, I'd say their appetite is what? What, what other opportunities are they going to have to experience this interprofessional uh, 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 value in their education? So we need to think about it as a repeated uh, event. If this is really core, and that's the principle we started with, this is a core element of learning, the core elements in our health professions education happen more than once. They get reinforced. You get different kinds of experiences as you move from novice to more expert, and as you become more experienced. So we have to think of this as a gradient. And very importantly, the next point is, that it has to involve meaningful work. And I've already alluded to that. It is not an end in itself. 
It is all about doing something better than doing it the other way. And the students are quick to see through if this is just kind of a, a, a made-up exercise. It has to involve something that is meaningful. Meaningful in the students' growth and development, and meaningful in a way that they can see how it applies to them being a better health professional in their chosen profession that ultimately will make them better at taking care of patients. So the end goal needs to be in sight from the beginning about why is this important, why is this meaningful, and why is this going to make you better at what you're going to do. New technologies can assist, but they have to be part of this careful thought out plan, whether it's simulation or the use of online learning, and the major commitment to faculty development is absolutely universal. And we're now launching some major programs to try to disseminate some of the successful faculty development programs that we've seen uh, in our experiences today. So I'll wind up here uh, so we can get back to the uh, party and back to the celebration of the graduation ceremony. Um, <coughs> we can build on the growing experiences that we have. Uh, we know a lot now. We know a lot more than we did four years ago. We can begin to cite specific examples of programs that are working, of curricula that's working, and now can begin to generalize and say, let's move this up to scale. Let's take the pilots and let's make them uh, universal. We need to work hard. The, the most difficult barrier, I would say, in reflecting on all the experiences that we've had is to take this into the clinics. Uh, and I've said out of the classroom and into the clinics. We need to link the interprofessional education reform with healthcare delivery reform. They need to be matched so that the students are learning in the best sites that are doing the best patient-oriented collaborative care. And that care site is the place that is the model for our education. We need to improve the scholarship in IPE. We need to measure better the outcome. Ultimately, the test is whether we are improving patient care and how can we measure the differences in our students' attitudes and behavior that lead to that. And finally, we need to not lose sight of the fact that all of this is about improving patient care. It comes back to the, the guiding principle that I've had since I started in this job, that we're aligning health professions education with the need of the public. And we have to constantly remind ourselves that's the reason to do IPE, not because it makes us feel good and not because it looks good when we describe it, but because ultimately it leads to better patient care. So not a new idea, but getting traction now because we've got more proof of concept and I think we have more of a burning platform that the status quo seems less acceptable, uh, both on the care delivery side and on the education side. We have tools and information available to begin to guide us and talk about best practices. We still have some things to learn about what is the right dose, what is the right balance between uni-professional uni and interprofessional. So there's still some learning to be done. There is important scholarship to be done to improve the metrics so we can measure the outcomes. We still need to work on the culture. We're, we're chipping away at it, but we've got a long way to go. We're overcoming hundreds of years of tradition uh, that have kept, this, kept the profession separate. Uh, and we have to work hard on that. And ultimately, we have to demonstrate that this leads to better patient care because that's why we're in this business in the first place. So thank you for including me in your graduation ceremony. And thank you for sharing with me your wonderful stories that gives me encouragement that we are on the right track. Uh -huh. But we got to multiply, multiply. Thank you very much.
And we've, we've written on that subject, we had a conference on that subject, we've actually sponsored an IOM study on the subject, and the, and the bottom line of that is, yes, we think all of this should inform us. We should stop doing continuing education separately. Yeah. And we should stop doing it in classrooms. Uh, we should be dealing with real-world situations that are about care improvement and, and about working better as teams. And that's what people ought to get credit for yes. in their continuing education. So that's another revolution, quiet revolution. It's actually beginning. There's some models of that out there. One of the things that's happened since, not just because we published a report on it a few years ago, but because of um, a number of societal trends, not the least of which is also the economics, uh, is that the drug company support for continuing education is falling. And while some think that's bad news, I think that's good news. And I think as we're freed up from the ties that that has about what is going to be talked about and what the motivation for it is, that we can begin to think, right? to me, the models for continuing education going forward ought to be much more institution-based or health system-based. Uh, and it ought to be interprofessional. There ought to be around the real-world problems. How can we improve the care of this patient or this group of patients or the functioning of this clinical entity? And that's the true continuing education. Very good Great. question. Thank you. Yes? Um, I wonder if you've given any thought to trying to implement this on services in the hospital, given the changes in graduate medical education and the need for mid-level providers, PAs, and nurse practitioners and residents and the need for them to work together and the difficulties that exist in them working together? Great idea. Another major area. So we've just called for a series of conferences, graduate medical education reform, to include this in graduate medical education. And uh, this summer, a major new Institute of Medicine study, the state of graduate medical education in the country, we started based on recommendations. Having said that, we've recommended it, how to do it is it gets even more complicated when you move out of the student level and the hospital level because you have the, the career trajectory of all health professionals is the same. There's a highly developed program for doctors called our graduate education or our residency and fellowship programs. It is less well developed in other health professions so that the matching becomes a little more difficult, but can be done. And it isn't always going to be with learners. It will sometimes be with practitioners, uh, learners and practitioners together. But you're absolutely right. This carries on up to the rest of the training process, and as the earlier questioner asked, the rest of the health professional
health professions education ought to be more aligned with the needs of the public, it, it implied in that, probably should be stated more explicitly, that means we ought to be asking the public also about whether we're fulfilling their needs. Uh, and by and large, our educational processes have been largely immune from any kind of public uh, that's been seen as a professional and We've learned a lot in the quality and safety movement. We felt we used to feel the same way about all the clinical care we provided as well. Probably in some quarters we can still feel that way about the clinical care. But we now have a lot of evidence that inviting patients in, getting patients' commentary on how we're doing in delivering their care improves that care. And I believe the same would be true about our education process. Mm -hmm. There should be a place for the public for it. Yeah. Dr. Pierce. <coughs> Earlier tonight, Lee Goldman, the dean, our dean, was here. And I, I think he's that However, when he came here about five years ago, he, he was the dean of the School of Medicine. Yeah. He looked around for a couple of years, and whether it was uh, two years or two and a half years, and then he went to talk to a fellow named Bollinger, who happened to be president of the university, he said, I would like you to change my title from the Dean of Medicine to the Dean of School of Health Sciences. Now, he could tell you, but I couldn't tell you whether Bollinger thought about it for 10 minutes or 10 weeks, but he thought about it, and then he said yes. And so now, Lee Goldman, who went incidentally from Harvard to Yale. Yeah. I, I, I know Lee well. We worked <laughs> together for many years. A, a wonderful progression from medium-sized places to a very big city. He's finally made it to the big town. And I, I think that his vision is precisely Don Berg's vision and your vision, which is let's train public health and nursing and pharmacy and dentistry along with now public health. Boy, we have a public school of public health there. Thank you, Milson. Uh, uh, excuse me, not Milson. But uh, anyway, I think the poetry of doing things together has been recognized by some of our viewers. And I agree. So much of the care, both in the clinic and on the wards, is delivered by people who make a lot less money um, than, than probably most of us in, in, in the room, medical assistants and also other community health workers. And I was wondering if the nursing assistants um, so crucial to the teams. I wondered if you have any thoughts about helping us learn how to work better with, with those health workers. That, that's a great, great question. And I've been asked it before. And if you look at our list of grants, and we're not doing it. There's no specific grant we have to do. Uh, but it's a very important area. And uh, I'm not quite sure how to
coordination and resources that were put into this process were remarkable. And there's no doubt that changing accreditation guidelines, regulation, really moves curriculum, moves institutions. And when we're looking at medical schools, dental school, et cetera, and where interprofessional education comes up in these accreditation kind of guidelines, and it's not, it doesn't have a very powerful presence yet. Yeah. Now, I wanted to know whether that is down the pike, what's the discussion there in terms of changing the accreditation?